Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning and welcome. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. We welcome all of you to our Sunday morning Bible study here in our gymnasium. Welcome all who are here with us in person. Also, everyone listening on KFUO, 8.50 a.m. in the St. Louis area and all really around the world that might be listening on KFUO.org. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, those of you that regularly listen to this study know that we always look at the lessons that are assigned for the coming Sunday, so for next Sunday. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I thought that we would take a look at the lessons that are assigned for Christmas Eve. So on Tuesday, in many of our churches, uh, these will be the lessons that uh, you will be hearing if you are worshiping on Christmas Eve. But before we jump into those lessons, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, it is with great anticipation that once again we prepare to celebrate your greatest gift to us, that of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank and praise you for your great love that moved you to send him and moved him to sacrifice his own life in our place. We pray today as we continue to study your word that your Holy Spirit would bless us in that study, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We will be looking, first of all, and for those who are here, there are sheets uh, up on the cart there that have the lessons printed out for you if you would like. We're going to be looking first at the Old Testament lesson assigned, and that's Isaiah chapter 9, and it's verses 2 through 7. But I do want to back up and catch verse 1 as well. For those of you that have a Bible here, we'll, we'll look at verse 1 as well. Remember now, Isaiah is writing approximately 700 years before Christ will walk this earth. So we're talking seven centuries are going to pass uh, before this will come to fruition. But we'll start at verse 1 of uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll eventually get down to verse 6, where that is, I think, the most recognizable uh, section of this uh, prophecy concerning Christ. But starting at verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, in verse 1 there, it says there will be no gloom for her, and that would be God's people who were in both 734 and 732, the northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were taken over by the Assyrians. They were on the northern side, and if I had a map here, I could show you right where they were. East, uh, east of the Jordan River and in the Northern Territory. And so being in the Northern Territory, they were the most vulnerable to any kind of attack from, uh, from any type of enemy, in this case, the Assyrians, okay? And so what God is saying here through the prophet Isaiah is that although God brought judgment upon them through the Assyrians, this is a prophecy now of restoration, and even more than that, of them even thriving. And so he is going to, as it says here, uh, make glorious the way of the sea. The way of the sea was an east-west roadway 
that went from the Sea of Galilee over to the Mediterranean and then down the Mediterranean. He's going to make that glorious again. And he's going to um, make the Galilee of the nations is going to thrive. Notice there, that's, that's Gentiles. That's Gentile territory, okay? So that's verse 1, talking about this restoration of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Then we get into verse 2, which starts the lesson for Christmas Eve. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Well, again, who are those people who walked in darkness? This would, again, be God's people as they were taken over and taken captive by the Assyrians, a leader named Tiglath-Pileser III. That's not a, <laughs> that's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, they used to call him TP3 for short. But uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, leading the Assyrians. And so the God's people that were in darkness now, on them is light going to shine. So the first uh, way we would see this fulfilled is God is going to restore his people. There is going to be a faithful remnant that he will work through and restore. However, the ultimate fulfillment of this is the light of the world, Jesus Christ, coming to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And if we doubt this, all we have to do, if you've got a Bible handy again, is turn to Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew quotes this as the fulfillment when Jesus begins his earthly ministry in that very territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, Galilee, we might say, uh, the northern part. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 4, and let's back up a little bit. We'll start at verse 12. Matthew 4, starting at verse 12. Now when he, Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay, so Jesus is, is kind of receding here. After leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And so he leaves where he had grown up, you know, in Nazareth, and goes, it's not real long, but goes to Capernaum. And Capernaum is going to be his base of operations. Uh, that's where it's right on the Sea of Galilee. It's a, sort of a northwestern uh, shore city on the Sea of Galilee. That's where Peter uh, lived. That's where Matthew was collecting taxes. So he goes there, and uh, Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Matthew here makes Jesus beginning his ministry and sort of living in that area a fulfillment of what we have here in our Old Testament lesson, Isaiah chapter 9. So we know that ultimately this is pointing to Jesus. And he is, of course, the light that has come into the world. We could look at John chapter 1, where that is mentioned repeatedly. Uh, in fact, let's just, I'll just take a moment. I hate to keep jumping around so much, but let me just read for you from John chapter 1, where we get this light and a darkness theme that is pretty prevalent there. 
So John chapter 1, and we want to start around verse 5. So let's start at verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we could go down to verse uh, 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So we get this repeatedly in the scriptures, referring to Jesus as the light of the world. And right here in Isaiah, we've got that those, those land, there were two tribes actually, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were assigned territory. Even though there was darkness there for them, many of them off into exile, land taken over by the Assyrians, on them light is going to shine. And ultimately, it is the light of the world that will come and shine upon them as Jesus basically makes that area his sort of base of operations where he, where he is so much of the time uh, preaching and teaching and healing. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, for example, on the side of the shore of Sea of Galilee. Uh, so just so many things happening there. And it's like, again, a great light has come upon them. Okay? Then going on, uh, verse uh, 3, you, this would be God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So notice here is, again, a, a prophecy of restoration and even thriving, multiplying the nation, increasing joy, as with joy at the harvest, right? I didn't grow up in a farm uh, uh, area. My wife did. But when you have a harvest, and it's assuming, of course, that it's a, an abundant harvest, right? There is great joy. It's a time of great joy when that happens, right? Or they make, uh, Isaiah makes the comparison here, dividing the spoil. That would be, of course, what you win in battle after a, a war has taken place. And there is the the spoil of, the, of, the, um, of the, those who have been defeated, right? And so again, a time of great joy. Verse 4, for the yoke of his. Now notice here we start talking about a male uh, here. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Well, the oppressors in this case would have been the Assyrians, right? And again, uh, there's another way of looking at the oppressor as ultimately being the, the uh, father of all lies and the master deceiver, ultimately Satan himself as well. But um, there's a reference to Midian here. And maybe you remember the story. You remember the story of Gideon with the Midianites? And remember, uh, it's almost, it's, it's not intended to be comical, but it, you have to kind of chuckle when you read it. If you go back, we won't uh, read it here, but just to recount it here. You go back into Judges uh, 6 and 7. Gideon is rallying God's people to go out and defeat the Midianites. And they start off with 32,000 uh, men that are going to go out, God's people, go out and take on the Midianites. And uh, Gideon says, uh, if any of them are really not uh, for this, they can leave now. 22,000 of those leave at that point of God's people, so they're down to 10,000, and, uh, and greatly outnumbered. Uh, I think the, the um, I'd have to go back to but the Midianites were at least like 120,000 or more. 
Slow her down to 10,000. God says, no, that's too many. That's too many. Uh, I, I'm gonna, I want you to know that I am giving the Midianites into your hands. So this is the famous one where they come, and God has a way of burning them down in number, God's people down in number. They come, and they're going to drink water from a, a, like a lake, a little lake. And those who go down on their hands and knees, God says, no, you're out of here. But those that stay standing and are lapping the water up with their hands like this, they get to stay and fight. You know how many that was? 300. Down to 300. They are outnumbered 450 to 1. But God wanted to make sure that they knew that he was giving them the victory. Long story short, they go into battle, and uh, they have the... Uh, they divide the 300 up into three groups of 100. <laughs> what is that going to be against this huge army? And they're on the sides, and Gideon says, we know when I blow the trumpet, you blow the trumpet, smash these jars, light torches. They did. And the Midianites were just in total chaos, ended up, uh, you might say, imploding themselves, and God gave the victory to his people. See? So what he's making a reference here, Isaiah is, that it's going to be like it was in the day of Midian, when I, again, give you the land and give you the victory, and making that reference to that time of Gideon, which they would have, they would have had in their head. They would have remembered that. By the way, you can go there uh, today in Israel and uh, show you the, it may not be the exact spot they knelt over, but that body of water. Uh, you can go and see that today. We saw that a couple years ago. All right, now, uh, let's go to verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So any, any type of, of um, war, a vestige of war, any uh, clothing that you know, has been in battle and as a result has blood on it or any boots that would be, that's all done away with now. There's going to be no more... Uh, upheaval and battle and fighting and violence, that's all going aside. And now we get to the part that we all know. <laughs> Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So right away we figure out what's the, what's the cause, what's the reason for this joy that's going to be happening and taking place. First of all, a child is going to be born. And not just any child, but a male child, a son, is given. This is the same male child that would have been referenced back in Isaiah 7:14 uh, that we had today, if you were in church already today, that uh, this will be a sign for you, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Same one we're talking about here, two chapters later in, in Isaiah 9, okay? Uh, the, and the government, so he's going to rule and reign, the government will be upon his shoulder, so he's going to be the, the one who reigns and rules. And notice his name here. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Literally, it's a, a wonder of a counselor, is, if we were translating it uh, directly. And so, again, think of his wisdom, the wisdom that Christ brings, as opposed to the rulers that they had in those days who were uh, not so very wise, especially when it came to their relationship with God. And remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? 
So he is going to be wise in that sense. Mighty God. So he is going to be called Mighty God. This, this child, this male child, Mighty God. Everlasting Father. So he is going to be never going away, you might say. He is everlasting, never ending. And then the one that we uh, just love, Prince of Peace. His purpose in coming is to bring peace, not just a political peace uh, with God's people and their geographic enemies, but between us and God once again, taking away sin, right? Remember, as Jesus said himself, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And so... We might stop for a second and just reflect on that. Does that peace that Jesus brings to us, does that mean necessarily that we're never going to have anything bad happen in our life? We're going to just have a completely tranquil life uh, from, uh, from this point on? No, obviously not, right? But even in, the, uh, even in the midst, and sometimes you look at, I've mentioned this before, sometimes you see the lives of, of some Christians and they, face, they have faced an incredible amount of adversity uh, in their life and bad things, terrible things. But it's even in the midst of that that we have that calm or that sense of uh, peace and, and confidence that doesn't come from us. We don't talk ourselves into this or you know, make this happen ourselves. It's what Christ brings to us. It comes from outside of us. And we know that whatever happens in our life, whatever happens in this world, the most important thing, our relationship with God has been completely taken care of by Christ. And that which caused the problem in that relationship, namely our sin, has been completely eradicated. You know, as, as the psalmist says, as far as the, the east, i got to get my directions here, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far... Uh, our sins have been removed from us. You can't get any further away, right? And so that's the peace that this male child comes to bring, okay? And we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, what happened after that. Let's go to verse 7. Of the increase of his government, or his ruling, his reigning, and of peace, there it is again, there will be no end. So only Christ could bring a peace that will never end, right? Here on this earth, we've, no matter how long we go, it seems like there's going to be some war sometime, some battle somewhere, but only Christ brings a peace that will not end. Notice again, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. We know that he will uh, come from the house and lineage of David and will reign and rule as actually uh, uh, he, is, he is David's Lord as well, isn't he? Even though he is, he's one much greater than King David. Uh, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that last line, I think, is pretty important as well. We don't say a lot about this, but notice there, how would you, how would you define zeal? Someone has zeal. They have great what? Enthusiasm, tenacity, fervent for something, right? 
It's the exact opposite, we might say, of laissez-faire and, you know, really just not even caring much. He comes with a zeal to accomplish what is spoken of here. And you just think of him going forward. Think of, my mind at least, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane when he is out there on Monday, Thursday evening, knowing what is going to come, what lays ahead uh, for him. And instead of running away, if you go to uh, Israel today and you're up in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, you look over and you see Jerusalem and you see the little Kidron Valley, which is probably an overstatement. It's kind of just like a, a big ditch almost, really. It's not that wide. And he could have definitely, it was nighttime, of course, could definitely have seen that temple guard coming for him with their torches. He could have ran over the top of the Mount of Olives and been in the wilderness and escaped all that, but he did not. And again, you think of the zeal that he came here to do exactly what he was sent to do, to offer his life as a ransom for many. And he did that without hesitation. Yes, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, if it, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but then not my will, but thy will be done. So again, we see him as the perfect fulfillment of this one who is predicted here by Isaiah 700 years earlier. And again, marvel at the zeal with which he came to do what he did. Okay? All right, let me stop there. So that will be on Christmas Eve. You'll be hearing that Old Testament lesson. Any comments, questions? Don. Mm -hmm. Oh, great question. Yeah, uh, Don mentioned that the uh, phrase in here, the government will be upon his shoulders. And is that maybe what led some people to be looking for him to be an earthly kind of ruler? That certainly could be if they, if they wanted to take it that way. And, uh, of course, we know that there were some back in Jesus' day who uh, welcomed him to Jerusalem thinking that now he's going he's gonna to get rid of the Romans, you know, throw off the Romans, set up his own little kingdom here. I mean, who, who wouldn't want a ruler like that, right? A guy who can feed 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children on five loaves of bread and two fish. That's uh, pretty good for the economy there, right? No more, no more uh, hunger. Uh, so there, there were many people who may have taken it uh, this way, and we're looking for an earthly sort of ruler in him. And, of course, he came to do much more than just that. His reign and his rule are everlasting, will never end. And a lot of them you could see, couldn't you also, how you could take this, if you, if you were um, a, a Jew at the time of Jesus, take this sort of as a nationalistic kind of a, of a, of a prophecy, right? That our nation is going to rise again. And that's what a lot of them were looking for, to return back to the glory days of David and Solomon through this, this Messiah who is going to come. But as we know from elsewhere in Scripture, he came to do a lot more than just that. But that's a great question. It definitely could be taken that way by some. Okay? Any others? Any comments, questions? All right, let's go on. Uh, we'll just take these in order. Let's go to Titus now. And it's a very short lesson, uh, verses, uh, chapter 2 of Titus. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. And we'll just take this kind of piece by piece here. For the grace of God has appeared. Well, we might think of, again, what, first of all, let's, let's define what do we mean by the grace of God. 
If we were uh, in Sunday school uh, and the teacher asked, uh, what, what is, we use that word grace all the time. It's more than just a, a girl's name. Uh, what is the grace of God? Okay, yes, there's the good Sunday school definition. If you use, uh, what's that called, an acrostic, I think? God's riches at Christ's expense, right? That's the one we hear. It's really, uh, that's very true. It's, it's sort of, also we, we talk about it in terms of being God's undeserved or unmerited favor or love shown to us. We don't deserve it. We don't uh, merit it at all. But in spite of our sin, he loves us with an everlasting love. It says now the grace of God has appeared, and we would think of this chiefly, of course, in Jesus. That Jesus is the, the very representation, or more than representation, of God's grace, his undeserved love and merit to us, burning salvation for all people. Now, could you see how you might misinterpret or misread that last phrase, bringing salvation for all people? Does that mean all people are going to be saved? No. It's bringing sal- it, it is there, though, for all people, isn't it? It is, it is procured, it is won, it is offered to all people. So this is a great verse to counteract a teaching that sometimes the Reformed will call the limited atonement, that Christ only died for those who would eventually believe in him. And we'd say, no, there are plenty of passages, including this one, that this, this, what he did and, uh, and, and procured is offered to all people, right? Uh, think of the gospel in a nutshell, John 3:16. for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. So this is offered to all people, okay? And um, then... Training, uh, verse 12, training us now to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So we as people who have received the grace of God, who have sins forgiven, notice there, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I don't know about you, but that, it is hard sometimes, isn't it? When you are in maybe a group of people that uh, are, you know, either practicing, thinking, saying ungodly things, uh, and very worldly passions, it's hard sometimes for us to, as it says there, renounce. That's kind of a strong word, renounce these things, right? And uh, it, it, so often we're tempted just to remain silent or remain quiet rather than to renounce these things as, as unpleasing uh, to God, uh, not according to his will, right? Uh, and uh, think about when we do a baptism, what's one of the first questions the pastor asks the child, and we all respond on behalf of the child, do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? And we respond with, I do, or I do renounce them, right? So this is where this comes from, this ungodliness that we see around us and worldliness. Worldliness would be, of course, things that are just focused on the pleasures of this life and this world. We renounce all of those. And notice there, live self-controlled, so we are disciplined, in other words, upright and godly lives in the present age, so while we are here, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus. Now, what are we talking about there? What does he mean when he says that we're, we're waiting for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God? When is that going to happen? On the last day. Yeah. So we're looking ahead. You know, we are finishing up Advent here. Uh, we only got a couple days left of Advent. And Advent, remember, is not just preparing the, to celebrate the coming of Christ born in Bethlehem, but also his present day coming to us in word and sacrament, and then finally his uh, final coming to us on the last day. Uh, the word Advent means coming, and, and so we, there's a threefold coming of Christ that we remember in Advent. And here we're talking about the second coming of Christ, the appearing of the glory of our great God. Now notice there that this talks again of Jesus as being God. It is addressing him as deity. So it emphasizes again, just like we did in Isaiah, he's called mighty God there. And here again, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. You kind of get the idea there, don't you? It really comes through there that he voluntarily made this sacrifice. Notice it says there, he gave himself. Nobody took him. Nobody forced it. He gave himself for us to redeem us. So what does it mean to redeem something or somebody? Buy back, yes, to buy something back. Um, I don't know if we even have redemption centers anymore. I used to, a long time ago, I think we had redemption centers where you could go and, well, maybe they're called pawn shops today, I don't know. Maybe, but you could go and buy something back, right? And uh, here, that's exactly what Christ did for us. He bought us back, not with any kind of monetary, not with silver or gold, remember, but with his holy, precious blood, innocent suffering and death. So we have been redeemed. We have been bought with a price, that price being the blood and the life of Christ, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. Notice, he does the purifying of us for himself, a people for his own possession. Okay? who are, notice there, zealous for good works. So, as Lutherans, we're supposed to be zealous for good works. How so? Not to do what? Not to earn. Try to earn God's merit. Remember that grace is unmerited, undeserved love for us. So we are zealous for good works, not so that we can, uh, in some futile attempt, you know, try to, to please God and win his favor. That, it's impossible, first of all, uh, because of our sinfulness. But secondly, we don't need to do it. He gives us that grace. But we're zealous for good works now out of thanksgiving and gratitude for what he has already done for us, right? We, we look around now and we say, well, the biggest concern I have, maybe my, my relationship with God has been taken care of. What do I do now with the rest of my life? Well, I look around at my neighbor, and, and this is the great uh, thing Luther stressed, you know. Uh, Luther, if he didn't say this, he, I, I've heard him quoted as saying this many times. If he didn't say it, he should have. That um, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does, right? And uh, we then serve God and serve our neighbor with the rest of our born days here on this earth. So zealous for good works, right? Uh, we often like to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and we kind of forget about 
2 verse 10, right? It's by grace you have been saved by, through faith. This is not your own doing, uh, not, lest anyone should boast, not because of works. And then verse 10 talks about how we have been created for good works, that God, is, or that God has created good works for us already, that we should walk in them. And that's verse 10. So uh, sometimes we have to be careful. We always want to preach and, and teach against any idea of trying to work our way to heaven. But on the other hand, it's not that we're opposed to good works. As Christians, we are, as it says there, we want to be zealous in our good works, right? And uh, boy, just read the... Just read the Good News. That's uh, a publication here at St. Paul's, for those of you not here. Just scan through the Good News, and you will see all kinds of examples of being zealous with good works. And that's not to toot our own horn, but uh, that's, that is what the Christian life is to be, a life of gratitude, faith, and good works. Okay? All right, so that's a very short lesson. Any comments or questions on Titus 2? Very short, 11 through 14. None? All right, let's go on to the one we've been waiting for now. This is the Christmas account from Luke's Gospel. We have the tradition here at St. Paul's that we always use this on Christmas Eve. Uh, Matthew, of course, uh, has a much shorter, much more abbreviated account of this. By the way, I learned something uh, this last year I hadn't heard before. Um, you know, I mentioned that Luke has such a great account of Christ's birth. And uh, all these details, uh, then, uh, uh, let me preface this by saying this is not in the Bible. This is outside of the Bible. But tradition has it that Luke, who is a Gentile, was also an artist, a painter. And there is a tradition that he actually painted a portrait of the Virgin Mary. And that during this painting is when she told him all the details surrounding Christ's birth. And so that is a, again, that's a tradition outside of the Bible, but could be, right? Could be true. And Luke has, again, such a great section here. So let's start um, right at verse 1 of Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. All right, let's stop right there. Caesar Augustus. Caesar was simply the generic name for the leader, like we have president, right? And then we have their name. So Caesar was just the generic name for the emperor of Rome. This emperor would, would have been Octavian, and he was, first of all, a statesman. Then he became an uh, a, um, army soldier, and then was elevated to this, to this office in 27 B.C. and ruled... Uh, until 14 A.D., and he was given the name, he was the first one ever to be given the name Augustus, which um, is uh, translated something like the exalted one. Okay, So he's the emperor, the exalted one, Caesar Augustus. A uh, very powerful guy, very powerful, very impressive sort of guy. And in, in 27, by the way, in 27 B.C. is when he was given that name, Augustus. Okay? We, use that, we use that language today. We'll say we're, this is a very august group we have assembled here this morning, right? So it's a high, highfalutin uh, kind of group, to use common language, right? So 
he sends out this decree that all the world should be enrolled or registered. It was like a census uh, that we do. Uh, the history has it that these uh, census was done about every 14 years. And this one uh, would be, of course, just of the Roman Empire at that time. This, now, here comes the, there, there is a problem in verse 2. I'm just going to say this right up front, and then we'll talk about it. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, we got a red flag here on the play. Um, the problem is trying to match up Quirinius's dates of ruling. They were, uh, historically, record says he was governor of Syria from A.D. 6 through A.D. 9, which creates a problem uh, for the dating. Uh, and the way we usually talk about this, first of all, uh, it says it's the first registration. So is there, there's two ways to take this. Was there a time when Quirinius was governor before that we don't know about? Or was he in another position and given charge of an earlier census? We just don't know, or it's not told. Uh, and, and so was this... Was this, and then the other one is, was this a first registration and then the main one came later when he was governor of Syria? So we just don't know. And you can read a whole bunch of, uh, a lot of ink spilled on this, and we, in the end, just have to say we don't know. Okay? We just don't know. But anyway, what Luke is trying to do here is really precisely put this into historical context, that this is when this happened. Okay? Now, uh, uh, verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So you had to go back, unlike today, you had to go back to wherever you, uh, your origin was, wherever your family clan was, that's where you went. And there you were registered. You were signed up as existing, as living in the empire at that time. Okay? So, number verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So, uh, we get, and then we're going to see that Mary goes along with him. You know, uh, I was looking up the other day how far that is from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Okay, Nazareth, a little bit south of Jerusalem, to way up, uh, up further in Bethlehem. It depends on which route they took. But it could be anywhere from about 65 miles up to about 90 miles. Can you imagine that? In, in her condition at that time? Uh, and what do you think? Maybe do 15, 20 miles a day. So there, uh, the theory is that it probably took at least, if they went, you know, without stopping for days, uh, took three, four days, something like that, easily to get up there. So that's quite a journey, Okay. And notice there, Bethlehem. Is there anything uh, that stands out about Bethlehem in the Old Testament? It's the hometown of David. Yeah. That's really its only claim to fame is that it was the hometown of former King David in the Old Testament. And there's, if we were to look at Micah 5, verse 2, we would see a prediction there that Bethlehem is going to be the place where the Savior is going to be born, right? 
It's that prophecy, but you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you know, least among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who will rule, or, and goes on from there. And so Bethlehem is identified in Micah 5, verse 2. So again, you can just see things lining up here to be exactly the way they were predicted they were going to be in the Old Testament, okay? So he goes to, he goes to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Not only is Joseph going to be of the house and lineage of David, but so is Mary. And they both go now to be registered. And what's their condition? They are not married yet at this time, are they? They are betrothed. And when you were betrothed in Bible times, it was a very serious thing. Many times I've heard people equate it to our engagement today. It was much more serious uh, a, a thing than our modern-day engagement. In fact, at this point, uh, when you were, were betrothed, the uh, fathers would actually sign papers, sort of it was a legally binding sort of thing at that point. Gifts would have been exchanged between the families. The, a dowry would have been exchanged uh, from, from the bride, uh, bride's family. And if you were to break the betrothal, you actually had to get a divorce. That's how serious this was. And the only thing was that you were not living together yet as husband and wife. You were, though betrothed, was a very serious commitment not to be taken lightly. You just weren't living together yet. And then the wedding itself is when the, bride, uh, the bridegroom rather, comes with the bridal party to the house of the bride, takes the bride, and there's a big procession through the streets, and a ceremony takes place, and a long celebration takes place after that. Sometimes uh, we've read even for days at a time. But at any rate, they were betrothed at this point. And remember, what was Joseph? We, we, we don't have it here in Luke, but we have it in Matthew. What was Joseph's response when he finds out that, uh, that she is with child? He's going to divorce her, remember, divorce her quietly is what Matthew says. He didn't want to put her to any public shame, was going to divorce her, uh, divorce her quietly until God intervenes and, uh, and lets Joseph in on something. And uh, Mary herself, of course, uh, is told first that that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So again, uh, that's their situation now. When they are going, she's betrothed and is with child. Okay, Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay? So important, that, again, Luke gives us this detail, firstborn son. There aren't any other siblings yet running around because they are just betrothed at this point, not even married yet. Um, so firstborn, wrapped him in swaddling cloths. I did a little reading on this, <clears throat> that the custom was at that time when a baby was born, they would clean the child up first, and they had a custom of, of rubbing salt on the baby's skin, which we would say today sounds kind of abrasive, but can you think of why they would rub salt on the newborn? Sort of a 
disinfectant sort of a thing, right? We, we gargle with salt water. That's what I was thinking anyway, maybe for, for uh, hygiene purposes. And they would rub oil on the newborn as well. That uh, most assuredly would be olive oil in that part of the world. And then they had these claws called swaddling claws that they would kind of wrap the baby in um, and, and kind of tightly wrap uh, the child. Uh, that's uh, swaddling, I guess, has become a little more popular again more recently here in our, in, in our world, in our, our culture as well. And uh, that's what was done back then and may still be done today over there. I'm not sure. And notice, where do they lay him? In a manger. What's a manger? Feeding trough for animals. Yeah, can you imagine that? Uh, the, God himself is placed in straw in a trough where animals eat from. Can't get much more humble than that, can you? How, how ironic, how um, completely unexpected that is, right? And so he is laid there because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we've got to talk about this. Um, the word for inn, usually in this, we don't want to mess up all of the Sunday school uh, plays here in dramas, but the word for inn here is actually a guest room. Uh, in the original language. Now, why would there be no room for them in a guest room? Because what's happening here? The census and the whole family is here now, right? And what most uh, scholars think is that there is, it, the houses then would have, like you can probably see this in rural parts of America, there would be the house, then there would be a guest room, and then there would be an adjacent, uh, sometimes maybe even attached, uh, area where the animals would be kept and would be kept warm and would be fed and kept there overnight. And so what they're thinking uh, is, is that, again, that guest room was already occupied by maybe more prominent family members than Mary and Joseph. And there was no room for them there. So they go out into the into this stable area out here, and that's where they are going to bunk down for, for the night, and that's where she delivers the Savior of the world, right? And so that's uh, what we're thinking here. If you go to Israel today, you will also uh, be told there is a tradition that this might have been a cave uh, that, was, that was right next to the, the house itself, uh, and it, it doesn't matter. It's just the area where the animals would stay. They used to have the custom of keeping animals in some of these caves at night as well for their own safety. But anyway, it probably was not uh, like a Holiday Inn or a uh, uh, courtyard by Marriott or something like that that uh, didn't have any room. It was probably a guest room in their own home, the family home there, that, again, was occupied, and there was no room for them there. Okay? All right. Uh, now, watch the irony here again. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds at that time, were they considered to be some of the high-class high uh, people? No. Uh, thought by many to be lower-class uh, people of, of that time. Uh, some of them saw, uh, uh, thought to not be such savory characters. And uh, who are, who's going to be the first ones that we know of to find out, other than, uh, obviously other than Mary and Joseph, that, that a Savior has been born? These shepherds out in the fields, right? So verse 9, 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with, a, with great fear. When you read this in the uh, original language, it emphasizes the fear. It says they feared with a great fear. <laughs> it's translated. They, and you can imagine. I mean, they're out there. It's, it's dark. Uh, and all of a sudden, this angel appears, and the glory of the Lord shows around them. So, you know, you almost are reminded of the transfiguration, right, where the, the, his appearance changed and became bright. You know, it's the same sort of thing. The glory of the Lord showing around them. And the angel said to them, fear not, or actually stop fearing. Again, in the original language, stop fearing. Why? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be, notice again here, the universal impact of this, will be for all the people. Um, I was just reminded, you go to Israel today, uh, there is a place you can go called Shepherd's Field. And it is one of the few places where you can see both Bethlehem and Jerusalem from this hill area. And down in the lower part, there's a, there's a valley there that, that is where shepherds were keeping their sheep. And we think that back in Bible times, this is where the shepherds raised the sheep that would be used in the sacrifices in the temple in Israel, or in, in Jerusalem. And remember that those, those sheep had to be not just the runt of the pack, but they had to be, again, remember for the Passover, it was a one-year-old male without spot or blemish. So these were the special sheep, you might say, uh, that the tradition has it would be raised out in this shepherd's field. And the, you wonder, are those the shepherds that the angel appeared to, the ones who were preparing the sheep to be the sacrifice in the temple, now get to hear that the Lamb of God has been born? Not in those terms. Kind of an interesting little caveat there. But, again, we don't know for sure. All right, now, so, why, why should there not fear? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So for you, for shepherds, this Savior is born as well. And notice there, it, we just talked about that the great joy will be for all the people. A Savior, first of all, it is said there, one who saves people, who is Christ, which means the anointed one or the, the, the Messiah one. And notice their Lord, uh, thinking of, again, his deity, godliness. Uh, the, the Christmas hymn, Jesus, Lord at thy birth, right? He, is, he doesn't become Lord later on. He is Lord at his birth even, okay? Then verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. And that is the word for an infant. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying. So when we, we think of the, there's the one angel, but now the, the, there's a heavenly host. You know, we talk about... Uh, the Lord of the Sabaoth, or the, the Lord of the heavenly hosts. And they are all saying, glory to God in the highest. Now, for a long time in my life, I misunderstood this. We're not talking about God in the highest sense. 
We're talking about the highest realms here. In other words, heavenly realms. So glory to God in the heavenly realms, or the highest, and here on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's hard. That's a hard one to translate, the end of that verse. Uh, sometimes you'll see it translated something like, among men of his good pleasure, or among men with whom he is pleased, or something along those lines. But again, he is pleased with us only through his great love and grace shown to us. Okay? So glory to God in the highest heavens and here on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Okay? Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Notice there they have heard about what has happened, and they respond in faith. They now say, let's go and see. They are believing exactly what the angel has said to them. So let's go and see this thing which has happened. And notice, who do they give the credit for? Which the Lord has made known to us. The Lord has revealed this to us. And the Lord has to reveal this same thing to everyone, doesn't he? It's not something we figure out on our own, that this Savior is uh, the one that God reveals to us as the Savior, okay? No, no other Savior, this one that the Lord has revealed to us. And I kind of wonder, you know, what do they do? This isn't the wise men story now where they've got a star, you know, coming and, and uh, uh, landing over where he is laying. Did they just go to Bethlehem and start asking around? You know, was there a baby born? And, and you know, how did they actually get to it? We're not, Luke doesn't tell us that, and we don't have to know that. But it's kind of, you go from the fields and you go into Bethlehem, is there a, is there a newborn baby anyplace? You know, where is he? And finally, uh, they, uh, they get to it, verse 16, and they went with haste, notice they're hurrying here, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, or lying again in a, in a feed trough, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So they get there, they find Mary, Joseph, and the baby, and they start talking about what the angel had told them about this child, right? And so uh, then right after this, uh, verse 18, and all who heard it wondered or, or were amazed. So who would have heard this? Maybe other family members? of Mary and Joseph, who were there and saw this, maybe some other people around. Uh, they were amazed or wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. you got to wonder, what was she thinking at that point? She already has what Gabriel has told her about this child uh, at that time that she was going to have. Now the child is born, and lo and behold, out of the dark of the night come these shepherds and report what angels have, an angel has said to them. And Mary, again, ponders these things. And verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen now. They had both heard and seen it as it had been told them, again, by the angel. Okay? So that, that is the story. And I've always wondered, too, just for the last comment, the, the, the shepherds, so they come, they see this. You've had angels appear to you. You've had the heavenly hosts open up. You've heard all this. You've gone, you've seen the child, and what do they do? 
they return, go back out in the field, and continue shepherding. And, you know, maybe there's something to be learned there for us as well, right? We've heard about the Savior. We, through the eyes of faith, have seen the Savior. And what do we do? We go back. We, we work. We, we serve, right? So the same thing, only having heard and seen what God has brought about. Okay? Lois. Yeah, you would think, yeah, uh, the question was, did the shepherds witness to everybody? You would certainly think so, right? Go back praising God and telling people what ha they have seen, right? And uh, then you've got to wonder what was the reaction to other people, you know, uh, when these shepherds would, would say that. You certainly wouldn't think they'd keep silent about something like this. I mean, how could you, how could you uh, keep silent about something like that? Yeah, absolutely. All right, good. Any other comments or questions? Don. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yeah, the question was, we don't know uh, the word betrothed, and we don't know when they actually got married because they are going to pretty soon now leave to go to Egypt when the, the slaughter of the innocents is going to happen. But no, we don't know exactly when they officially uh, tied the knot, so to speak. Yes, yes, right. The, the comment was, wouldn't she have been subject to a lot of public shame? You got to wonder, uh, and again, we're not told all these details, but you got to wonder, she's obviously pretty far along when they show up at the family place. What, what are the other family members thinking about this, right? Yeah, maybe that's, that's maybe why they ended up in the, in the table. I never thought of that. But uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you got to be thinking that uh, what Mary, and again, we don't have any accounts of this. But the other things that Mary endured, you know, um, as a result of being betrothed and, as it says here, with child at this point. Yeah, the, the comment was, and yeah, there was a Lutheran Witness article that they probably stayed with relatives. Yeah. And again, this is that idea that it probably wasn't a Holiday Inn or a, you know, or a Mott or a Motel 6 or whatever you want to say, that it probably was a family home, and that's where they ended up staying. Although this, this time out in the, where the, the, because again, the guest room was probably occupied by other more prominent family members. Brian, we've got to wrap up here. Right. Yes, absolutely. Good way to end the class. Uh, what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and, again, fulfills all of those prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, they are full, filled full in Jesus. Okay? All right. Thank you. Good class. Let's uh, close with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.